0: Today, we are starting a new, uh, a new sermon series leading up to Christmas, and I uh, called it Advent is a Season 2. And today, we're looking at this sermon called Advent is a Season to Prepare. And I, I don't know about you, I, I just have found it incredibly difficult to even believe we've already made it back to the holiday season. Uh, it just seems like yesterday that we were celebrating Christmas and New Year's, that I was at Highland Lakes with our kids at Hot Hearts, and that we shut down our church for a pandemic. It just has all flown by so fast. And, uh, you know, it may be the sentimental preacher in me, the romantic or whatever, but, but I don't like it. You know, I know that I've got a limited amount of time on earth, and I really like to savor every day. But this year has been so chaotic The days have just flown by. And so I told my family a couple weeks ago, this Christmas, I want to go all out. I want to bake cookies. I want to watch a Christmas movie every day. I want to listen to Christmas songs. We set up the Christmas tree the week before Thanksgiving. We don't even care about conventions and rules. We're going all out this year, and it's my fault. I want to savor and cherish every gift God has given me, my family, my church, my friends, I want to just soak up. And one of those gifts is the church season called Advent. You know, what it does is it, it forces us all to slow down. Don't hurry up and get to Christmas just yet. But join in with God's people of old they their waiting and their longing and their anticipating of the coming Messiah. Now, we'll get to December 25th soon enough. It'll be here like this. You know, the rest of the year has flown by. The last remaining weeks, they're going to fly by as well. And then we'll celebrate the baby Jesus in the manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, God with us. But for now, we get to wait and long and anticipate. Because all all the Christmas carols, away in a manger, silent night, they force our attention backwards. Things that happened in the past. But Advent's an invitation to look to the future when Jesus comes again. Because that's a promise of the Bible. Just as he came once as a baby, he will come again and all flesh will see him. And so that is what this Advent season is all about. It's a gift and an invitation to join in in the slowing down process, the waiting and the anticipating of the coming Christ. And as we do that, I want to begin right here in the book of Luke and really show you today how God took the initiative to prepare his people for the coming of Christ. Most of his people were caught up in formalism and religiosity, just dead rituals, and they were totally unprepared to receive Christ as he would come. And so God took the initiative. He sent John the Baptist to prepare the way. We're going to look at that and see how that ties in with us, because I want you to know today, if you really want to prepare for Christmas, it's not about Christmas trees decking the halls with boughs of holly. It's about recommitting ourselves to living with a wholehearted love for God and others. That's the way we prepare for Christmas and for Christ's return, when we commit ourselves to a wholehearted love for God and others. And it just jumps out right here from us in Luke chapter 1. So if you're there with me, we'll go ahead and start reading in verse chapter 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. I'm going to say Zacharias. Your Bible may say Zachariah. That's okay. It's the same guy. Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, this is a surprising place to begin the Christmas story. You know, As Christians, we are tempted to just kind of jump right in on baby Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. Or maybe we're like Mark and we just kind of jump right in to his adult public appearance at the River Jordan. And that's where we pick up the story of Jesus. And so it's surprising that Luke sort of introduces something that we might think is a distraction from the main attraction. Why are we talking about an old priest and his barren wife? I want to hear the stories about Jesus. But here's the thing. We know this, we sometimes forget it, but Jesus is born into a history that stretches back at this point already 4,000 years. He's the fulfillment of all kinds of promises. And so Luke says to old Theophilus, to whom he's writing, if you really want to know the story about Jesus and understand what his coming means, what it's all about, how it has relevance for each of our lives, you really got to see it within the bigger picture of what God has been doing with his people. And so instead of turning our attention to Mary and Joseph and Jesus and Bethlehem, he draws our attention to Zechariah, the old priest, and Elizabeth, his barren wife. And the way he describes them is really amazing. If, if you were looking for some terms to describe yourself and to aspire to, you really couldn't do better than blameless in the sight, or righteous in the sight of God and blameless and all the commandments of the Lord. Those are incredible ways of speaking about somebody. You know, Luke recognizes that yeah, they've got this wonderful pedigree. Both of them are from the ancient tribe of Levi. They both have a common ancestor in Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first priest in Israel. But it's not about their pedigree for Luke. It's about this piety, this personal dedication to the way of God. He says in verse 6 they're righteous in the sight of God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. In other words, I told you before that many of God's people had found themselves slipping into a a dry, formal, ritualistic, going-through-the-motions kind of faith. But Zacharias and Elizabeth were different. They were a bright spot. They were completely dedicated to the way of God. I've got this in my notes, I don't know. They were like the first century Jewish power couple. They got this wonderful pedigree, this personal piety. They are everything you could hope and expect from the people of God. And because of that, they have this incredibly unique role to play in God's plan. You see, even though they were blameless, they were barren. And like Abraham and Sarah, this pious pair had dedicated themselves to living faithfully before the Lord but they felt like their life was empty and fruitless because they didn't have a child And the rabbis in the middle ages were commenting on this and and the way it seems that whenever the scriptures alert us to a barren woman it's like an alarm bell drawing our attention that something miraculous is about to happen and that's exactly what it is that even though Zacharias and Elizabeth had dedicated themselves to God, they felt like their life was barren, that there was something missing. And in that way their lives kind of paralleled the people of God as a whole. You know, Luke also tells us right here at the beginning that this story takes place in the days of Herod, the king of Judea. I don't know how much you know about Herod, maybe you know that Herod was a master builder he constructed all sorts of amazing monuments, including the, the massive temple in Jerusalem that uh, just absolutely dwarfed Solomon's temple. It was twice as long; it was just massive. And uh, but Herod was an ethnic Edomite. Maybe you can stretch back into the Old Testament and think about the Edomites. Uh, Herod was an ethnic Edomite, a convert to Judaism. He'd essentially bought the crown from the Romans so that he could have his own little puppet kingdom in this semi-autonomous region of Judea. And it goes without saying that an ethnic Edomite is not from the house of David. And a semi-autonomous puppet kingdom of Judea is not the kingdom of Judah. The people of God weren't experiencing the best that God had to offer. Things had kind of gone haywire. They were missing something. You know, the the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, they tell us that after the 70 years of exile in Babylon, that God brought his people back, they were permitted to return. And even though they were able to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, they wept at the sight of them. Because the majesty and the glory of God wasn't there. Something was missing. You could bring the people out of exile, but you couldn't bring the exile out of the people they were, they were left asking questions. I mean, the, the prophets had promised that after the exile, God would bring his people back, his glory would return, they'd live in this reestablished kingdom. But by the time Zacharias, Elizabeth, are fretting over not having a child, it's been 400 years since any prophet's spoken in Israel. It seemed like God's promises had just kind of been left unfulfilled, hanging out there in the balance. Because of that, they had sort of slipped in to the mindless monotony of religiosity, empty ritual, and formalism. I mean, it's true, some continued to hold out hope for a coming Messiah, but most of them were aptly described by the prophet as Jesus says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so as Luke begins the story of Jesus, he, he draws our attention to Zacharias and Elizabeth because they stick out like a sore thumb among a people unprepared spiritually. They are the bright spot among an unprepared people. And God has a special purpose for them. Because they had lived faithfully before him, because they had walked blamelessly, now they were getting involved in God's plan. And he was going to answer their prayers for a child. So let's keep reading in verse 8. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, Standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, before we get to the wonderful promise of a coming child, I don't know, maybe did you get bogged down in all this language of, as he was performing his priestly service according to the appointed order of his division, according to the priestly custom. I I get turned around in some of those details. And as I started digging this week, my mind kind of exploded at how all these things come together in almost a historical bottleneck to say that Zacharias, at this point in history, there's maybe nobody more important on the face of the earth for God's plan, than Zacharias. I'll tell you why. You you think about, okay, what's going on here? We know Zacharias is from the priestly family, a descendant of Aaron. Well, at the time, there were about 18, probably more than that, but 18,000 priests in Israel in the first century. Because there were so many, they had come up with a scheme to spread the work of temple worship around. And so twice a year, each priest in Israel would leave his home. Zacharias lives in the hill country, wherever that is, Bernie or Fredericksburg or something. And he'd leave for a week, and he'd go to Jerusalem to do his part in making sure the temple functioned. And he'd go home, and then six months later, he'd go back. And because there were so many priests, and, and really so little work to be done around the temple, most of the tasks got appointed to a person by lot. And I don't know, you know, the the Old Testament talks about the urim and the thumim, the dice that the priests would roll to get the Lord's will. I don't know if that's what they're doing or if they take a number drawn out of a hat. Who knows? But most of the tasks that happened in the temple at this time were appointed to a specific priest by lot, by chance. And so one of these tasks was the daily offering of incense inside the sanctuary. See, most of the the sacrifices and the offerings, there were two daily offerings, morning offering, evening offering, which was a public sacrifice made on behalf of the people. That happened in the courtyard outside of the temple itself, where the altar, the sacrificial altar was. But this offering of incense was different. It was within the temple. You go through the front doors, not into the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the temple, but into the temple itself, into the sanctuary, the holy place. There was a special golden altar that had fire underneath it that would warm up the top so that the incense that was laid upon it wouldn't just burn up real quick, but would slowly release its aroma and smell. And so it comes time, I think probably in the afternoon, um, the afternoon sacrifice and the prayer that was offered with the offering of incense was related to the salvation of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And when it came time to draw lots for this, the old man, Zacharias, is chosen. The crazy part about this is because there are 18,000 priests, the great privilege of entering into the temple and offering the offering of incense was so great. The privilege of it was so great that it was only allowed for a priest to do this once in his entire life. And so finally, after, who knows, I mean, when you're talking about an aging person in the first century, he's old, who knows how old he is, but he's waited his whole life for the number, for his number, to be called. Zacharias, it's your chance. So here he is at the end of his life, getting an opportunity to go into the temple and offer this incense. And so I imagine him leaving behind the crowd of worshipers out in the courtyard, basket of incense in his hand, Entering into the temple, kind of like I do some Sunday mornings after our deacons come in at six to pray, they leave and I stand up here and practice my sermon and just kind of look up at the stage and how beautiful all the construction is and just think, wow, what a privilege I have to serve the Lord here. And That's what Zacharias is doing, walking in the temple, overwhelmed that today he was tasked to offer the prayer on behalf of the people. So he'd come up to the altar, and he'd sweep away the ashes that were left over from the last offering. And he would lay his incense on the altar. And then he would lay out on his face, prostrate before the Lord, and offer up a prayer on behalf of the people. And so there he is, laying there before the altar, offering up his prayer. The aroma of the incense slowly filling the room. Maybe smoke starts to envelop him. And he peeks up, looking around, pinching himself. And he's in the temple before the presence of the Lord. Privileged to offer a prayer on behalf of the people. And there's an angel. An angel. Like Isaiah before in Isaiah 6, he's in the temple, the same place, sees a vision of God on his throne, and there's an angel. Isaiah says, woe is me. Zacharias is so afraid, he can't even find words. I love the way Luke says it in the NASB. It says he's disturbed. Disturbed. ESV says troubled, and the New Living Translation says shaken. In any case, he's overwhelmed with fear. Here he is trying to soak up the sacred privilege of offering a prayer on behalf of the people in the very presence of God, And it's all come crashing down because there's an angel there (laughs) scaring him out of his mind. But then the angel speaks. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. The fear you're feeling right now, Zacharias, is going to be replaced by joy. Now this is another interesting element of the story, because most of the time—and maybe you can attest to this—I know I can in my own life. When I pray to the Lord for something specific, I usually don't know if He's going to answer my prayer until He either does or doesn't. You know, I I pray for something. Uh, maybe you've prayed for God to provide for your needs. And you keep praying, Lord, you're going to show up and provide for my needs. And then he does, and you recognize that God answered your prayer, and you say a prayer of thanks to him. Thank you, Lord, for providing for my needs. And you go on about your life with a little more confidence that God does hear your prayers, and he answers them. But there are a few times in Scripture when God actually telegraphs his intention to answer a prayer before he does it. And I've got three examples for you. The first one comes from Daniel chapter 9. When at the end of 70 years of exile, Daniel's meditating on the prophets and realizes that, wait, Lord, you said there was a 70-year clock, and that 70-year clock is up, so what are you going to do? When are you going to bring us back to the promised land? And so he's praying this prayer, Daniel chapter 9. About halfway through, while he's praying, he says, the man Gabriel appears and says, hey, Daniel, from the moment you started praying, the word went out, to send me to you to let you know that your prayer was heard. This is what God is going to do. Now, the other instance is in Acts chapter 10, when the Roman centurion, Cornelius, is praying in the afternoon, offering up a prayer. He's a God-fearer, but doesn't know Jesus. So while he's praying, there appears a man in bright clothing who says, hey, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and this is what you should do. He sends for Peter. right? And then, here in Luke chapter 1. Zacharias, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. You'll call his name John. There are only a few times in all of Scripture where God telegraphs his intention beforehand to answer a prayer. And in each case, they're at a major inflection point in his relationship with his people. So in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's publicly and corporately confessing the sin of his people And God says, hey, Daniel, I'm going to bring you guys back, and this is my plan for the world. An inflection point at the end of the exile. God's people returning. Daniel gets a bigger picture of what God intends to do. Acts chapter 10 is an inflection point. God's about to bring the gospel through Peter to the Gentiles in an extremely public way with the Holy Spirit following them, speaking in other languages. It's going to be undeniable. It's an inflection point. The gospel spreading beyond the Jews. And then in Luke chapter 1, it's an inflection point. That God's about to send his messenger before him to prepare the people. Now, it's normal to pray and wait on an answer and not know if God heard you or not. And it's conceivable that God could have done that for Zacharias and Elizabeth, just as he's done for, I would assume, millions of Christians in the history of the world who have prayed that God would give them a child. And then they found out a few months or a few weeks later through natural processes that they were pregnant. God could have done that for Elizabeth and Zacharias, answered their prayer quietly, given them the joy of a positive pregnancy test in the bathroom, and it would have been great. But it was an inflection point. He's drawing their attention to say, Zacharias, you have an important part to play. This child's not just any child. This child has a mission. This child has a purpose. This child's going to be an anointed prophet. And so let's keep reading this last little bit to see who he's going to be. He says in verse 15, He'll be great in the sight of the Lord, and he'll drink no wine or liquor, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb, and he'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It's he who will go as a forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, everything about Gabriel's description of John is drawing attention to the fact that he's different. He's unique, specially called and appointed to a unique task. He's an anointed prophet. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And I love how Gabriel speaks, none of us can do this, but Gabriel speaks with the force of certainty. He doesn't tell Zacharias, This is what your son could be if you raise him right, and if he commits himself to it, and if everything goes according to plan. This is what your son may be if all the factors of life on earth fall into place just right, this is what John could be, maybe. But Gabriel, over and over and over, speaks with the force of certainty, and he says, matter of factly, this is what your son will be. This is who he is. He will be this. The first thing he says is that he will be great in the sight of God. That's an amazing statement. To be considered from God's perspective, we know what a great man is a man that receives honor and admiration from his peers, the guy who gets the plaque from the local civic organization. Uh, He's a great man. But to be great in the sight of God is not to receive praise and admiration from your peers, but it's to receive honor and glory from God himself. And Gabriel says John will be great in the sight of God, that God will bestow honor and glory on him. And I think it's because of his wholehearted, complete, dedication to the task that God's given him and in his role in ushering in the new messianic kingdom. I believe that because in Luke chapter 7, after this little miraculous baby grows up, starts preaching, making enemies, he ends up in a jail cell. And he sends some of his followers to this new guy, Jesus, to ask him if he's the Messiah or not. And Jesus speaks enigmatically, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and sends John's disciples away. And as they're walking off, Jesus says in Luke 7, 22, among those born of women, there's none greater than John. He will be great in the sight of God. But it's not just that. Gabriel also says that he will be consecrated and sanctified. He will not drink wine or liquor, strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now today it's kind of unusual to find a person completely committed to abstinence from alcohol. There have been various points in our nation's history when that was more common and even legislated prohibition. But today it's sort of a strange thing, you know, maybe you've experienced this when you won't drink and somebody in your family or your friends say, hey, why not, just have one. But in the context of ancient Israel, it wasn't all that unusual. In fact, even in the book of Numbers, there was a special rule and regulation put in place for the Nazarite vow, a person who for a season had as a public declaration to God and people that they really needed God to come through or bless them in a specific way, would take a vow not to drink the fruit of the vine, wine, or to cut their hair. And the most famous Nazarite in all the Old Testament is Samson. You read about him in Judges 13. Interestingly, um, the angel who spoke to Samson's parents about his coming birth tell them that he's going to be a Nazarite from his mother's womb. But here's the deal about John. His abstinence from alcohol... And the camel hair shirt he ends up wearing and the locusts and wild honey that he ends up eating aren't some kind of temporary public expression of his attention on God. They are sort of the natural byproduct of a person who has no desire for strong drink or wine. Fine clothes, soft flannels that sit against your skin real nice— No interest in that. person who likes steaks, baked potatoes, a little side salad with honey mustard, not a factor for John. He's not living for comfort and pleasure. He's wholly dedicated to God. That's the only thing that matters to him. Completely, 100%, wholehearted, sold out to the mission that God has for him. Beyond that, it's not just this personal consecration. It's also the fact that God's going to give him his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to be with him from the moment of his conception and on. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come on prophets, came on Samson, Samson slay a bunch of Philistines. But nobody had ever known the Holy Spirit of God like John was going to know the Spirit of God. From the time of his birth, he was going to be empowered, compelled, lifted up, strengthened by God's own Spirit working through him. And all of this, endowment of the Holy Spirit, personal consecration, greatness in the sight of God, all of it comes down to the fact that those spiritually unprepared people that we were talking about were now going to lose one of their own. That John was going to be called out, set apart from this spiritually unprepared people to speak from God to them. And because of that, he had to be different this miraculous baby born to a barren woman and an old priest had a divinely appointed mission to make ready a people prepared for God. I just want you to think about that phrase. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A people prepared for the Lord. All that old empty ritual, the formalism, the religiosity that defined the Jewish life in the first century was going to have to be done away with, seen for what it was, just a distraction from true, wholehearted devotion to God. And the only way they were going to get off of that train was if there was a roadblock, one of those giant flashing lights you see on the highway, that forces you to turn. That's what John was. God didn't need another priest. He had 18,000 of them mindlessly going through the motions, dedicating sacrifices, slitting their throats, burning them on the altar, entering daily to offer incense, over and over and over and over. God had no use for another priest. He's going to use a teetotaling prophet to wake his people up out of their religious stupor. And Isaiah had seen this day come in Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, prepare in the desert a highway for our God. I like the way that the message puts it. He says, prepare for God's arrival. Malachi has seen it too. We read Malachi 4, but Malachi 3, 1, the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger before my face. This is who John is. He is the harbinger, the trumpet blasting, announcing a coming king. He's the herald who comes in and says, Ladies and gentlemen, please rise. Your king is here. This anointed prophet set apart to make ready a people prepared for God. And he do it come and preaching the common message, the one that's familiar to us, Matthew 3, 2. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They had to turn, get off the way they were going, to the right way, the way of the Lord, like a highway in the desert going straight before him. That's what they needed. So John called them to repent. But he wasn't after. You can imagine a guy in a camel hair shirt. He's not talking about writing a check and just going through the line and raising your hand and going home and doing the same things you've always done. He's serious, man. He says, You brood of vipers, who warned you about the judgment that was coming? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He wasn't interested in the going through the motion, motions, empty ritual, dead, lifelessness. He wanted to see real stuff, real turning that bore fruit, obvious. That's why Gabriel says he's coming in the spirit of Elijah from Malachi 4 to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children the children of the fathers, the disobedient to the way of the just. He's talking about the nitty-gritty kind of repentance that comes to a dad and says, Dad, you know, your kids have been annoying you lately. They don't listen to your rules. You're trying to teach them about Christmas. They think it's all about presents. Come on, fall in line, kids. It's the kids who says, I ain't got time for my dad's rules. Why do I have to return the tool when I'm done with it? Why does it matter? He'll find it eventually. John expects to see genuine repentance where that resentment and bitterness is done away with and instead there's genuine love. The person who has committed themselves not to live in blamelessly and righteously in the sight of the Lord but to disobedience, they've completely neglected those laws that God had given through Moses at Sinai has no factor in their life. They don't care one way or the other if God has said to do it or not. They're going to do what they want. When John comes He's going to turn the people to the Lord. He's going to prepare them, make them ready for the Lord's arrival. And it's going to show up in the way they live. They'll have to be different if they're serious about it. This morning, what I want you to hear is that God answered the prayer of an aging priest and his barren wife and sent an anointed prophet to prepare a people who otherwise would have kept on going the same way they had always gone. And when Jesus arrived, they wouldn't have been ready. But John did come, and people came from Jerusalem, and all Judea to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. And so they were prepared to see Jesus. That's why when John told them, hey, listen, there's a guy who's coming that's mightier than I, and I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, that he could also say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And people knew what he was talking about. They were ready. They had heard God's word. They had turned from their disobedience, from their religious, going through the motions, dry formalism. They were hoping for Christ. But others weren't. They still had their own ideas about messiahs and kingdoms. And when Jesus arrived, they were unprepared for the truth. And that's a sad sad reality. In fact, I think that's one thing that Advent forces on me the most, is that for every faithful Jew who was prepared for Jesus' coming, there was a dozen or more who weren't. The most significant person who had from the beginning of the Scriptures been promised And like Hansel and Gretel's breadcrumbs, you could trace out a developing and growing sense of who and what he was going to be. The religious professionals could look him in the face and he'd say, You search the scriptures because you think that they contain the words of eternal life, but they testify to me. They were totally unprepared for him. And Advent's important because he says when he comes again, he's not going to be preceded by a wandering desert monk in a camel skin shirt. Instead, he's going to come like a thief in the night. He tells his disciples in Matthew 24:36, 36, So that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels like Gabriel of heaven, nor even the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah went in the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. There'll be two women grinding at the mule. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and wouldn't have allowed him to come into the house and take his stuff. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when... You do not think he will. Who then is the faithful slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master, master finds so doing when he comes. And break it down for you real quick. John came like a trumpet blast, saying, Get ready, the king's about to be here. But it's not going to be the same. When Jesus comes back, he'll come quietly. People in Noah's day laughed at him, said, it doesn't rain, what is that stuff? Maybe they're from Luling, Texas, I don't know. What's rain? But they knew when the floodwaters were rising and God had shut Noah in the ark, there was no hope of escape for them. In that moment, they realized how foolish they had been, how unprepared they were for the cataclysmic judgment that God was pouring out on his creation. And Jesus says it will be the same way when he comes back. Quietly, like the thief in the night, he'll arrive and he'll execute his judgment. Therefore, he tells us, us, the spiritually prepared, to be on the alert and to be ready. And so this season of Advent warns us against slipping into the stupor the rituals of decking the halls and singing the carols and hearing the sermons and reading the stories but never allowing our hearts to be drawn in to who Jesus really is. Listen, if you want to prepare for Christmas this is the perfect time to come back to the basics. Say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a person who says I'm gonna live my life for Jesus? You know what it does? It comes back to those three basic principles. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, so you too ought to love one another. A person who dedicates themselves to that, 100%, wholeheartedly to the love of God and to neighbor, Will be spiritually prepared not just to receive Christmas as the wonderful gift it is, but to receive the King when he returns. Y'all pray with me.